This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg used to dance in Hastaira, and used to go around the bima, used to, at a certain point, everyone would bend their head down. And someone who was visiting thought, this is an ancient custom that goes back. Didn't understand the reason. He asked everyone, does anyone know why when you reach this bima, everyone like bends their head down? No one knew. Finally, he met an old timer. He says, oh, because when we built a shul, there used to be a beam, a beam there. <laughs> <laughs> I think 125, but I'm not sure if we read 124. Basically, he's quoting the Zohar. We started uh, letter number 26. He quotes the Zohar that the Zohar says that with this work of the Zohar of Shimon Bayechoi. Whoever is connected to this work has no need for any tests. And with this work of the Zohar, the Jewish people are going to be redeemed from this present exile. And he says, because this is the book of life, the tree of life, it comes from the tree of life, the secrets of the Torah come from the tree of life, versus the laws of the Torah permitted, prohibited, kosher, not kosher, pure, impure, guilty, not guilty, all of these, the mechanics of the Torah, the technical laws of the Torah, this comes from the tree of, of, of knowledge, which has a mixture of good and evil. When Mashiach will come, our whole sustenance will be from the tree of life. There are no questions, are no conflicts, are no questions, and not from the side of impurity. Because at that point, Hashem will remove all impurity from the earth, and the Torah scholars will not be dependent on the illiterate people. Their whole sustenance will be purely, exclusively from the side of good and holiness. And not from the Erev the mixed multitude that eat and re receive their sustenance from the other side. So today, in this day and age, the Torah scholars are compared to Shabbat. The Shabbat is dependent on the six days of the week. You want to eat on Shabbat, you have to work during six days. So even the Torah scholars are dependent on the illiterate versus Mashiach will come... The, uh, they will be completely self-sufficient. Every day will be Shabbat, and they, the uh, tree of knowledge will be completely um, nullified before the tree of, of life. 
and the uh, illiterate will be sustained by, through, by, the, by the Torah scholars. So there will be two different levels, he says. Mashiach will come to be the level of the Torah scholars who are engaged in the tree of life, engaged in the study of the Zohar and the Kabbalah and Hasidus. They will receive their sustenance directly from the tree of life. And then you'll have the illiterate and the earthy ones and they will still be drawing the sustenance of the tree of knowledge. And for them, the only distinction between Mashiach and today is that there won't be any anti-Semitism, but they will still be um, receiving their sustenance from the tree of, of knowledge. This is, quote, unquote, of the Zohar. Now, the Rebbe said this whole thing makes absolutely no sense. Firstly, how can you say that the Talmud and the Torah, the revealed part of the Torah, the mechanics, the technical part of the Torah, the body of the Torah, how can you call it? It's from the tree of knowledge, a mixture of good and evil. God forbid, it's Torah, it's divine. Every word in the Torah, every letter in the Torah, it's holy, it's divine, it contains the infinite. How can you say that, uh, that God forbid, it's a mixture of good and evil? Especially since the secrets of the Torah, the Zohar and the Kabbalah, were completely hidden and concealed. Only a handful of initiates who were allowed in, and even that was kept secret. No one knew about it. The overwhelming majority of the Talmudic rabbis were not allowed to study and were not exposed to the study of the Zohar and the Kabbalah. Also, according to this, according to this Zohar, that the study of the Zohar comes from the tree of life and it's superior, by far it's superior to the study of the Talmud, then how do you explain that you do not interrupt the studying of the Talmud, the laws and the rules and the halach and the shulchan you don't interrupt it for prayer. What is prayer all about? Prayer is based, is founded on mysticism, on the meditations and the reflections of Hashem. Meditation. Meditation. Meditation, yeah. Jewish meditation, of course. Reflection, meditations, on the names of Hashem and the upper worlds. Absolutely. So how can we say that you don't interrupt the study of the Talmud, which you said comes from the tree of knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil, you don't interrupt it for prayer, which prayer is connected to the tree of life and mysticism, which you said is superior. So it makes no sense. And not only that, according to Abshim Vayichoy, even if you're studying, um, you're studying financial matters, you're studying laws that deal with business, business is very messy. Like you said earlier, a bunch of sharks, Thieves and sharks and liars and, and the Talmud gets into it, gets into the arguments. This one, how do, we, how do we verify who's telling the truth? How do we, what do we do? This one says this one, this one says claims this way. I have no way of proving who's right. What do you do? So even when you're engaged in the laws that deal with the nitty-gritty of this f- physical world, that takes precedence, that overrides the mitzvah of prayer. The question is Why? These are rules and laws that come from the, a tree of knowledge. How, why does that take precedence over prayer, which is connected to the tree of life? And, and he adds even more to it. Shem is the opinion that you don't even interrupt for Shema. Even to read the Shema, 
you don't you only interrupt only if you're if you're reading the Torah then you stop and you read the Shema because the Shema is also the Torah but if you're learning the Mishnah you're learning the Talmud Rabbi Shem says you don't even stop to read the Shema Shema Yisrael every day we're obligated to read the Shema Yisrael but if a person is busy learning we're not talking about learning like we learn this is not called learning learning whose whole life was learning he didn't stop he didn't take breaks we take breaks anyway to watch a debate to uh, read a paper to follow the news if you're interrupting anyway surely you have to interrupt whatever you're doing and read the Shema but someone who learned like a Meshuvah by Echoi 24-7 and learned and this was his whole engagement and the world ceases to exist for him, he says, you don't interrupt, you don't stop reading, learning the Mishnah. And the Mishnah talks about rules and laws, do's, don'ts, guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated, pure, impure, and you don't interrupt to read to, in order to read the Shema. Learning the Mishnah takes precedence over reading the Shema. And it doesn't matter what you're learning. Not only if you're learning the laws of purity, the order of Taras, or the order of Kachim, which deals with sacrifices in the temple. No, the laws of Nizikin, which gets into the nitty-gritty of arguments and financial disputes, and, and that overrides the obligation to read the Shema. That overrides the Shema? Yes, according to Rabbi Shemim opinion, for people like himself. This doesn't apply today. Don't, don't, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in, and I, in concept, the whole idea that so here he says he seems to contradict himself here you just explained to me that Mashiach will come through the Zohar and the times of the Zohar times of Mashiach we're going to receive our whole sustenance our whole we'll be engaged in the secrets of the Torah and the Zohar and the Kabbalah and and then you tell me that studying Mishnah takes precedence not only over prayer but even over the Shema and then he says actually he contradicts his own opinion I think we left off page 124. He contradicts his own opinion. Given a number of instances in Ayah Mahamna, that Mishnah, relative to Scripture, is a term of handmaiden and so on. So it makes no sense. Here you tell me that if you're busy learning the Chumash, you have to stop and read the Shema. But if I'm learning Mishnah, Talmud, I don't interrupt and I continue learning and I skip the Shema. But elsewhere you write that the Torah, the five books of Moshe, this is like the queen. And the Mishnah is like the handmaiden, it's like the maid. How could you compare the Mishnah to the Torah is holier? It's even reflected in Jewish law, very simply. What, what goes on top of what? The Chumash goes on top of the Mishnayas. The written Torah goes, of course, goes on top of the oral Torah. So it's more prominent. So it makes no sense. Torah is more prominent than the Mishnah. And yet you interrupt from the Torah, but you don't inter- to read the Shema, but you don't interrupt from the Mishnah. It's a contradiction. And the Mikra, the, ver- the verses, the five books of Moshe, which is the Torah of Moshe, surely superior than Kabbalah, which is termed the queen. But the book of Moshe is like, is like the, the king. The written Torah is the king. The so scripture is even superior to the Kabbalah. Surely then it's, it's superior to the Mishnah. But on the other hand, from what we learned earlier, it seems to be that the Mishnah is superior both 
to the Kabbalah because you don't interrupt studying Mishnah to pray and you don't interrupt studying Mishnah to read the Shema. And it's even superior than, than uh, the five books of Moshe because the five books of Moshe you do interrupt. If I'm studying the five books of Moshe, I would interrupt to read the Shema. But if I'm studying the Mishnah, I don't interrupt. So the whole thing makes no sense. It's riddled questionable from beginning, middle to end. The whole position, what the Zohar is trying to tell us here, what, what role does the Kabbalah play, how does it fit in, how could you say that this is the tree of life and the rest of the Torah, God forbid, it comes from the tree of knowledge, a mixture of good and evil, God forbid, how can you say that? So this whole thing makes no sense. When he, he just explains king, he says king, this is the Said of Abba, Okay, so now we're up to page 125 to resume the discussion of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now he's not, he's not finished with the questions. He goes on with the questions. Pages and pages, because the whole thing makes no sense. Until he's going to give an answer, it's going to explain the whole thing. Page 125. To resume the discussion of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Moreover, we find that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai dealt considerably not only with the mere statements of law in the Mishnah, but also with the argumentation of problems and solutions, which according to the original quotation from Ra'ayah Mehemna, derived from the side of evil and from the spirit of impurity. This he did even when he was in the cave, where legal adjudication, especially in civil lawsuits, was obviously uncalled for. Indeed, the very fact that he underwent anguish when forced to hide in the cave made him worthy of these attainments. Now, Shubham was in the cave for 13 years. He had to hide, run away from the government that wanted him killed. I know this family, they've seen our people. Yes. He used to cover himself with sand. Yes. His son-in-law took a look at him. He was horrified because his skin was all, you can imagine, 13 years having to hide in the sand in the cave. And he says, he's, he's, yeah, of course. He says, don't feel bad for me because... Before he was hidden in the cave, he used to ask him a question. He can answer with a few answers. Now he says, any question you ask me, I became so sharp. Any question you ask me, I can give you 24 different answers. No wonder I'm confused. That's how, that's how, <laughs> that's how sharp he became as a result of his being in the cave. So what does it mean? That what was his main occupation in the cave? Learning. Learning. Gemara. He studied Talmud all day, every day, yeah. in depth. So he went yeah. to the cave and he brought all these books with him? No, I don't know if he had books or by memory, it doesn't matter, but whatever it is. Why is it Talmud? If he could take it with him in the cave the, for so many years, yeah. take long books? I don't know if he took long books, but he, he, he can remember. Don't forget, you're dealing with Rabbi Shimon Bayechai. So he had memory. Probably he has, he has a, he knew everything everything by heart, but he just studied in depth. He would take that that he knew and he would study in depth with his son and, and that's what Abulazar and that's what they occupied them for most of the time. So Abishiman Bayekhoi himself was occupied not with the tree of life, with the Zohar and the Kabbalah. What was his main occupation? The tree of knowledge, the Talmud, the Overt, the Halacha. Which, which seemingly contradicts the statement that we started out. For a state in the Gemara, he counted every problematic query posed by Pincus with 24 solutions. 
Rabbi Shimon said to him, if you had not seen me like this, in the Sari Satan cave, you would not have found me like this. What does that mean? Because he, he, he looked at him, he was horrified. Look at his body, the toll that it took on his body being in the cave and have to take off his suit and hide in the sand and back and wow. forth. So he said, he said, relax, don't feel bad for me. If you wouldn't have seen me this way, it's only because I was in the cave like this that now I'm so sharp that any question... You seven years he never 13 went years. 13. 13 years. He never went outside of the cave. Correct. They were hunting him down. He was a wanted fugitive. They wanted to kill him. I, 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 oh, all right, all right. Okay. I saw the cave that he was hiding. You all see right. the carob tree right out there. You see the... the in Pekian little village and you see the, uh, the the well the wellspring that's right out there can, can I ask silly questions here what, what did they eat carob and and water that's all they used to drink no no that was before he hid in the cave first he hid away he hid somewhere underground his wife would bring him food but very wisely <laughs> decided the Romans are just gonna torture his wife and force <laughs> her to divulge his uh, whereabouts See, he went and hid, even his wife didn't know, in the cave. And all they ate was carob. They were in a carob diet. Carob and water. That's all they ate. They were water. For 13 years. 13 years. All right, man, better than I am. <laughs> and he had, he had one set of, one, one suit, one set of clothes. In fact, their principal occupation in the cave, the principal occupation of Rashbi and his son, Rabbi Eliezer, must have been with the teaching of the Mishnayot. The 600 orders extent in those days until the time of our holy master, Yehuda Hanazi, who compiled the Mishnah in six orders. For well, he could have completed the Zohar and the Tikkunim, the Tikkunim Zohar, in two or three months, for surely he did not repeat the same subject twice. Surely then he was occupied almost the entire time of the study of the 600 orders of the Mishnah. So the question is, if you look at the Mishnayot, if you're studying day and night, like Rosh Hashim did, you can cover all the Mishnayot in three months. The same question he's asking in the Zohar, how long does it take to, to, to read the Zohar? How long does it take to say it, to, to read it? Uh, in three months, you can cover the whole thing. So you can say the same thing about the Mishnayot. What do you think he did for 13 years? Mishnayot. I can read all the Mishnayot in three months. You can know, so especially someone who knows it all, committed to memory and knows it all by heart. You can review all the Mishnayot very quickly. So why, what, what, what engaged him, what occupied him for 13 years? He was so fully absorbed and engaged. How long does it take to cover the entire Talmud? I'm saying, there are people who do it in one year. Ramesha Feinstein used to learn the whole Talmud in one year. Every day, every day, there are people who do it in one year. Every day they study, they study seven pages. Ten times. Ten times, amazing, amazing. So there are people who do the Daf Yomi, they cover it on seven years, but there are people who do seven blot a day. Ramesha Feinstein would wake up in the morning, five o'clock in the morning would learn seven blot. And every year he made a Siyam and Shas, and there are many people who do that. So... Again, 13 years, you can ask the same question. Okay, so they had more Mishnayas than us. They had uh, 600 orders. But still, the same question you ask in the Zohar, you can ask in the Mishnayas. What's the difference between the two? It says Rav Ashi, when he, he redacted the Talmud, he compiled the Talmud at the end. Again, he had the first, the first, uh, the first uh, edition. And then the revised. Then after 10 years... 
it took him like 10 years to really go over it again. Um, so surely, we're not talking about reviewing the Mishnah. He's talking about going in depth. The Mishnah covers so many deep topics which the Talmud spends pages and pages trying to grasp and to understand and compare one Mishnah to the other Mishnah and the logic and the reasoning. So if you really get into the underlying logic and reasoning, there's so many points that you can stop and think about and discuss and try to figure it out and try to understand enough to keep you busy for more than 13 years. Keep you busy for a lifetime. But the Zohar, however, he just said that the Zohar, it comes from the tree of life. He quoted in the beginning of the letter, he quotes the Zohar. The Zohar comes from the tree of life and there are no questions. Everything is clear. There are no questions and no difficulties and no contradictions. Everything is crystal clear. So there's no need. If you're saying the Zohar, you understand the Zohar, you understand it, and it's crystal clear to you, there's no need to spend 13 years and two, three months. The whole Zohar, he said the whole Zohar. Whatever is there to say, he said. And he knew it. So he's not going to sit for 13 years and repeat it uh, every day like a mantra. A Jew has to study Torah. You have to engage your mind. You have to understand. You have to grow. You have to learn something new. So with the Mishnah, since there's questions and there's contradictions and lack of clarity and, and things that need clarifications and need explanations and contradictions, so you can see how Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Lezer would spend their whole time in the Zohar fully occupied. They weren't bored. No internet, no TV, no newspapers. And they weren't bored. They were busy learning 24-7. They were fully engaged. All they had were each other. They were fully engaged on, on the highest level. So much so, Rabbi Shimon said, he was able to, any question he was asked, he suddenly was able to answer 24 answers. That's how sharp he became because his mind, there were 13 years, he was concentrated. 13 years, he totally focused like a laser and concentrated and studying Torah in depth. So that was the revealed part of the Torah that engaged most of his time. So how could you say that the Zohar is the tree of life? And the uh, Torah, the revealed Torah, the Talmud and the Mishnah comes from the tree of knowledge. Rav himself, the author of this statement, spent the overwhelming majority of his time engaged and occupied with studying the Talmud, the revealed part of the Torah. So much so that the Alter Rebbe writes that there isn't a chapter in the Talmud which doesn't mention Rav Shimon he was involved in every discussion and every issue of the Talmud. He was there, he was present, he was involved, he was thinking about it, he had something to say on it, he had some innovation, some, shed some light. So he went through in depth and studied thoroughly every single part of the Talmud, every aspect of the Talmud. And that's what he did for 13 years. Can you imagine? For someone like Abshim Baichoi, it wasn't a punishment. 13 years in the like a sabbatical for 13 years can you imagine you can get away for 13 years you don't have to worry about anything no bills no, no taxes no food no does all you do is all day is sit and learn learn day and night with such a with such a student like his own son Ravalezer the two of them together had each other I mean this was to them it was like a garden of Eden 13 years un- without any interruption no distraction no interruption 
total immersion in studying Torah day in, day out, in depth, engaging their mind fully, not just mouthing words and just repeating like a mantra, really learning and studying and understanding and growing in Torah knowledge and Torah insights and Torah understanding. This was what the 13 years were all about, Rav Shemayachoy and Rav Lazar. That's why he says, there was no exile. He never experienced the exile. Rav Shemayachoy never experienced the exile. There's anyone in Jewish history that experienced exile. Rav Shemayachoy was running for his life. He was a, uh, a fugitive. They wanted to kill him. Him and his son had to hide from the mighty Roman Empire. 13 years cut off from his family, hidden away. Abishimbaikhoi didn't suffer. All he had to eat for 13 years was some carob and, and water. And he had one set of clothes to wear, which he, he never suffered. No. For 13 years, he can study Torah without any interruption, day in, day out. This Tim was, uh, he was in Ganadin. He was in the Garden of Eden. Well, what, what? You couldn't, for a rabbi? No sermons for 13 years? Are you kidding? <laughs> a dream come true? Consider the study Torah, learn, immerse himself. Every rabbi had the choice to go back to yeshiva. A wish come true if I can go back to yeshiva for 13 years. You know, the youth, youth is wasted on the, on the young. If you can go back now and you appreciate it and have that experience, total immersion, no distraction. This was, this was like a dream. So he, he didn't experience any exile. He was beyond exile. He never suffered. He was beyond. This to him was, that's what he says. You're looking at me, you, you feel sorry for me that my flesh is all eaten up. And Are you kidding me? I had the best 13 years of my life. Any question you're going to ask me now, I can give you 24 different angles, 24 different ways of looking at it and approaching it. I, this would never be possible if I didn't have this opportunity and this experience. It's a whole different perspective. And then he was healed physically also. He was healed. But, but spiritually, he was, he was the highest level possible. But, so what do we see from this? Rabshim Shem was engaged in studying the revealed part of the Torah. So how could, you, how could he himself said that the secrets of the Torah come from the tree of life and the revealed part of the Torah comes from the tree of knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil. Then why did he occupy and engage himself most of the time in the study of the, of the revealed part of the Torah? The Talmud and the Mishnah. He should have studied day and night. All he should have studied was the Zohar and the Kabbalah. But he didn't do so. Rav Shimei himself. Like the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, wrote the Shulchan Aruch. The Alter Rebbe studied 18 hours a day. 18 hours a day he studied. In depth. The Rebbe, we know the Rebbe used to learn at least 12 hours a day. Our Rebbe, yeah. 12 hours a day. He answered letters, I think, one hour a day. He studied 12, at least, a minimum of 12 hours a day, every single day. You see from the talks, like a fountain, the Rebbe talks, he covers every part of the Torah from beginning, middle to end, the reveal, the secrets. There's nothing that he, that he hasn't doesn't fully mastered. And the Rebbe was constantly learning Torah. As busy as he was running the international Lubavitch organization and answering letters from Jews all over the world and the Rebbe, most of his time, the overwhelming majority of his time was studying Torah, day in, day out. And you see from the hours of his talks, the Torah that he talked, and how much, the breadth and the 
comprehensiveness of his knowledge and how he everything was in depth and how he mastered it and thought about everything and so but it's not just the secrets of the Torah the revealed part of the Torah so it seems to contradict his own statement that the secrets of the Torah is the tree of life and the revealed part of the Torah is the tree of knowledge a mixture of good and evil then if that's the case why would he why would he engage most of his time the revealed part of the Torah the mission of the Talmud Moreover, our sages of blessed memory have taught that since the day the temple was destroyed, the Holy One, blessed be He, has only four cubits of halakha, the study of Torah law, thus takes the place of the Holy Temple. How, then, can we possibly say, as the above passage from Ra'aya Nechemna might superficially indicate that the study of the laws of ritual permissibility and the like is designated as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and thus related to klipat naga, which is an admixture of good and evil. Today there is no Beis Amigdash. The primary purpose of the Beis Amigdash, this is a place where Hashem is present, manifests Himself. The only way Hashem is present to manifest Himself is a ein loy ella. Talmud emphasizes ein loy ella, the only way, exclusively, the only way Hashem manifests Himself today, like He did when there was a temple, is through studying of halach. Halach is the cut and dry, technical, mechanical, yes, no, right, wrong, guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated, kosher, not kosher, pure, impure. And by studying the halacha, studying the laws, that's where Hashem is present, that's where Hashem is manifest. So, studying the halacha is essentially higher than Torah? No, it's, 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 it's part of Torah. But he's saying it's, it's the highest form of Torah. He says the crown of Torah is Allah. It's the highest form of Torah. That's where Hashem is manifest. Within Torah itself, there's the discussion of the Torah. There's many different right. parts of Torah. The halacha of Torah, the conclusion, the distilling of all that knowledge to its conclusion, and the halacha, what's the correct, proper uh, way to go, this is the crown of the Torah. This is the peak. So this is the highest level. This is where Hashem is manifest. The what? Every morning when you give a That's what we do, the halacha, right? Exactly. And that's in the Shulchan Aruch? That's the Shulchan Aruch. Maimonides, the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch, the right. That's why halacha says, whoever studies halacha, as we say it in the end of the prayer, we quote the Chazal, whoever studies halacha every day is guaranteed to have a share in the world to come. Every day, halacha. That's where Hashem is manifest. The only way Hashem is manifest today is through halacha. So again, the halacha is the revealed part of the Torah. So how can you say that uh, the way it appears to be superficially, that the Zohar is saying that the halacha and the revealed part of the Torah, the mission of the Talmud comes from the tree of knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil, God forbid. He's saying Hashem is manifest. This is the crown of the Torah. It's the highest, highest level of the Torah. How can you say it comes from the... How can you minimize it and say it just comes from the tree of knowledge and a mixture of good and evil? God forbid. He's adding to the question. The whole thing, if you take the Zohar superficially, it makes absolutely no sense. What's the Zohar saying? Rav contradicts himself. Okay, there's yet... Uh, for, continue, there's yet further cause. There's yet further cause to be exceedingly amazed at how those who lack understanding comprehend this quotation from the Raya... 
So by the way, he says, this is a question that comes from misunderstanding. There are people who all they focus on is on studying Kabbalah, Hasidut, and they don't, they're not interested. They don't want to study Mishnah. They don't want to study Talmud. They don't want to study... And as if you know, the Zohar, the Kabbalah, Hasidus, this is, this is a real Torah. And the, the Mishnah, the Talmud, this is, you know, this is, this is technical stuff, mechanical stuff. I'm, I have no interest in that stuff. It doesn't sound inspiring. It's dry, it's cut and dry. As the Rebbe says, this characterizes as a misunderstanding of the Zohar. Because what more do you need? Rabbi Shimon Ben-Chai himself, the author of the Zohar, the master of the Zohar, spent over 90% of his time, overwhelming majority of his time, fully engaged in the study of the mission of the Talmud, the revealed part of it. What is the difference between a biblical commandment and a halacha made by Karo or somebody else, which is hundreds of halachot? Ultimately, there is no difference. It's all the will of Hashem. Uh, that's the Torah says it. This is a biblical law. This is a biblical law, and this is a rabbinic law. But ultimately, the only difference is that if you have a precedent, if you have a choice between a biblical law and a rabbinic law, of course, a, a biblical law takes precedence. But in essence, there really is no difference. They're both the will of Hashem. What's the difference? How it's revealed? If I, if I know that this is what Hashem wants of me. In a marriage, in a relationship, doesn't matter if your spouse wants something major or they want something minor. Uh, what difference does it make? If this is what they want, this is what makes them happy. Well, I'm only going to do things that are really major things. It's minor things, I have no time for you. You know, you, we know where that relationship but is going. In the Torah, God speaks to men. Do this, do this, do that. Correct. So, the yeah. are made by men, no? No, they're revealing Hashem's wish. Wish, Hashem revealed Himself through the written Torah. The oral Torah is also based on the principles that Hashem gave us. It's all based on the Torah. So this is the will of Hashem. So what difference does it make how Hashem revealed His wish? If He revealed it through the written Torah or He revealed it through the rabbis? This is what Hashem wants. That's, all, that, that's what it's all about. It's not, it's not some human being decided. This is what Hashem wants. So this is what Hashem wants. What difference is it? To me, it's the same thing. A minor mitzvah, major mitzvah, rabbinic mitzvah, uh, what's the difference? If this is what Hashem wants, this is how He wants it, that's all that matters to me. End of story. How it's revealed, what difference does it make? The only difference is the Torah itself makes a distinction between a biblical and a rabbinic mitzvah because if you have a conflict, if I could only do one, of course the biblical mitzvah takes precedent. But other than that, I treat it both with the same sanctity and to me the sacred and every word and every letter in the code of Jewish law is sacred because this is what Hashem wants. So the idea is it makes a lot of sense because if you're constantly studying the halacha, you're seeing the roots of where it came from, and this opens up the mystical understanding of it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get that. Very good. First, he's building the question, and then he's going to get it. Right? Yes, yes, absolutely. All right. There's a body and there's a soul, and the two, the two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. This statement comes in addition to the two preceding causes surprise at their misunderstanding of the quotation A. 
that a portion of the Torah can be termed as to, can be termed the tree of knowledge of good and evil. B. According to their understanding of Ra'aya Mechemna, the study of Esser and Heter, does not supersede the obligation to pray at fixed times, even though the prayers were arranged according to the secrets of the Zohar and the supernal unions, whereas the fact that for those individuals whose only occupation is the study of Torah, the study of Isavahetar does not, does indeed take precedence over the mitzvah of prayer. According to their understanding, it, sh- it should not take precedence, but the fact is it does take precedence. In addition to these two problematic queries, there is now a third. How is it possible that in the days of Mashiach, people will not need to know the laws of ritual prohibition and permission and the imp- and of impurity and purity? For how will they slaughter the sacrifices and likewise animals for the common cause if they will not know the laws of drasha? There are five major laws when it comes to shechita. Uh, darsa pressing, you're not allowed to press the knife, like push the knife onto the, into the animal. You have to cut it, you have to slice it, you have to move the knife, not press it down. On the esophagus uh, and the and the lungs, you have to slice slice them. So you have to move the knife. You can't press it. If you press it, it's not a kosher shchita. And halada. Chalada, you can't um, you can't hide the knife, like put it under the windpipe. Um, it has to be over the windpipe and uh, uh, over the esophagus instead of being under, like hidden under the skin, and then it's not not a kosher shrita. Or she, if you pause, you interrupt. And uh, so these are like three examples of of basic laws of shechita. So a person has to be knowledgeable. Mashiach will come. You're going to have to master all the laws. What is Mashiach? Mashiach is a time when we're going to fulfill all 613 mitzvot. No one is born knowledgeable. No one is born educated. You have to learn. You're going to have to learn. You're going to have to master. You know, a baby is still a baby. It's still going to be a baby and then a child. And you have to grow up and you're going to have to study and you're going to have to learn. You have to know. You have to master all these laws. The shechita, how do you slaughter? There's a myriad, many, many laws and details. You can't just, you're not going to take a pill and you're just going to swallow it and you'll have all this knowledge. Yeah. You're going to have to, uh, a smart pill, you're going to have to learn. So how can you say, if you read it superficially, Mashiach will come only going to uh, only derive sustenance from the tree of life from the Zohar and we're not going to engage in the tree of knowledge we're not going to engage in the tree of knowledge we're not going to engage in the halachas and the, of the Torah how else are we going to be able to, to live we have to know the halachas we're going to have to learn it and study it and master it will there ever be born a man who by his very nature will invariably slaughter without Shehiyo or Drasa Will the knife also remain perfect and unblemished forever? Since these are physical possibilities, people will obviously have to know the practical laws governing the Yes, the world will reach perfection, but perfection doesn't mean that everything is, is perfect, automatically perfect. That means that we'll have the potential for perfection and we will actualize that potential. But you have to actualize it. You'll have to work and actualizing it. It doesn't just happen by itself. 
we'll have all the potential and we will actualize the potential but it takes learning and it takes uh, doing so how can you say that we won't be engaged and occupied in studying the revealed part of the Torah we're going to have to master it we have to know all the halachas you have to know all the hundreds and thousands of details in halachas there are also many more laws re- uh, relating to the sacrificial offerings and so on, such as those regarding fat blood and other prohibitions. Mashiach will come, we're going to have sacrifices again. There will be a temple, so there's so many laws. Most of the mitzvot have to do with the temple. So you have to know what's kosher, what's not kosher. The butcher has to know what to cut, what's not to cut. You, no one is born with this knowledge. You show us an animal, we wouldn't know from our flanking from our, you know, what do we know? Us city boys, you know. We, we, so if you don't learn it, you're not going to know it. You can't just, well, everyone's going to be perfect. So, of course it'll be perfect, but you're going to have to learn and master it like anything else. It's not going to be supernatural. So how could you say that, that we, won't, we won't be engaged in studying the revealed part of the Torah? Of course we'll be engaged in studying the revealed part of the Torah. We're going to have to learn and master it and know it very well, all these laws. But won't when Mashiach comes, won't this be like paradise? Of course it'll be paradise, but so the animal, the animal has blood that you have to make sure not to drink, the, not to eat the blood. You have to, have to know which blood and what blood and, and which fat is good and which fat is no good. Of course it'll be paradise, but you have to let know. shouldn't that automatically be known? No, we're not talking about supernatural. Why, why, why supernatural? You have to learn. A baby, you think a baby will be born with, you know, the moment... No, no. So you have to grow up and you have to learn and you have to study and your mind develops. Of course, everything will be in a perfect setting then and everything will be perfect and there won't be any distractions and there won't be any negativity. But there's still, you have to learn, you have to master, you have to know your stuff. The practical things, you have to know. It's kosher, what's not kosher, what's uh, okay, what's not okay. okay. All right. So learning, the yeshivas will go on. Uh, 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 the yeshivas will start. <laughs> Every Jew will be in Yeshiva. What kind of question? Right now, it's just a little taste. We get a little taste of the future. Mashiach will come. What do you think we're going to do when Mashiach comes all day? We're going to learn. Those who will learn today will be rewarded because they have the zitzflesh. <laughs> Those who don't learn today, they're going to be tortured. They're going to suffer. What are they going to do? Mashiach will come. That's all you're going to do day in and day out is learn. Yes, you have to, to, to apply all this knowledge practically. You're going to have to know. You're going to have to go to the shlachtois and you have to take look at the animal and you have to be taught oh. this is chalev, this is, this is a chalev that's, pre- pre- that's prohibited and this is chalev that's kosher. You have to know your ribs from your flank. I mean, you're going to have to learn all this stuff. No, no, one, no child is born that he knows everything. I mean, such a child has never been created yet and never will be created. You have to learn. You have to, someone has to show you. Someone has to teach you. I mean, very simple. Our ability to learn will be... No question. Everything will be enhanced. But, but everything will be quicker yeah. and easier. But, but, but you still have to learn. There's no... People then will also need to know the laws regarding the impurity imported by a corpse. As it is written, a young man will die at the age of 100. And if there will be death in the world, these laws will, of course, be needed. So it says, it says clearly in the Pasuk that there will be death. That the tri- someone who dies at 100 years old, people will say, ah, a young boy chick, he died. But people say today, if God forbid, a young teenager dies, oh, yeah, yeah, never. 
someone will die a hundred years old, they'll say, well, why did he die so young? He's just starting his life. He's, he's just getting warmed up. He was such a pure thing. <laughs> <laughs> so a hundred years old, so there will be death, but it'll be rare, it'll be something that will be, people will live very long lives, hundreds of years, so a hundred years old will be young. Just like before the flood, people lived uh, in, the, in the 900s. What was a hundred year old? Was a was a baitrik, a shmendrik. <laughs> so, so there'll be there'll still be death. So you have to know the laws of death, impurity, impurity. Come in contact with that. He's quoting a pasuk. The pasuk says there will be. Can you say everybody will live forever? Not everyone. We're going to learn later who yes and who not. But not everyone. But even those who die, it's going to be something that. People will live hundreds of years and they'll be youthful and vibrant. So if someone will die a hundred years old, they'll say, he died so young. Poor guy, poor fellow. It will be further necessary <laughs> to know the laws governing the impurity of a woman who has given birth. As it is written, a pregnant woman and one who gives birth together will be among those restored to the Holy Land at the time of the redemption to Mashiach. If a woman will give birth every day, these successive births resulting from one marital union, in time to come, pregnancy will not last nine months. On the same day that a woman conceives, she will give birth. Moreover, additional children will be born on successive days from that same conception. Nevertheless, the law with respect to the restrictions resulting from her impurity will not change. Obviously, it can't mean that every single day she's going to be in to have intimate relations and she's going to give birth. Because instead of nine months, everything Mashiach will come will be quicker. Instead of nine months, it'll be nine hours or nine, uh, nine minutes. Everything will be quick. But, but it can't mean that after nine, after that same day, she's, after she gives birth, she's going to have relations with her husband and she's going to give birth again that same day. Because... After you give birth, you're not allowed to have relations with your husband. It's part of the Torah. If it's a boy, you have to wait seven days before you have relations. Then you can have relations. Go to the mikvah and have relations right before the bris. Hashem says, before you celebrate me, I want the husband and wife to celebrate together. Or in case of a girl, the Torah says, you have 14 days. So that the Torah doesn't change. Mashiach will come. That's a cardinal principle. One of the 13 principles of faith, the Torah never changes. It's not going to change when Mashiach comes. So it's impossible to say that she conceived, she gave birth, the womb opened up, she gave birth on that same day, and then she's going to conceive again. It's impossible. It, me- it means that the, con- the conception, she conceived when she conceived. As a result of that conception, she'll give birth, multiple births. Because what characterizes the time of exile is that there's a Grand Canyon a huge gap between potential and actual. Most potential never gets realized. That's what brings impurity. For, you know, for, every, for the sperm that impregnates the woman, there, there, there are thousands of cells that, that are just wasted. Nothing happens. Only one enters into the, and, and impregnates the egg. What happened to all the others? Wasted. And that's why every month menstruation, the woman has to go to the mikveh because there was a potential for life and that potential was not realized. That's the idea of the menstrual, menstruation. So, uh, Mashiach will come, there will no longer be any gap between potential and actual. Every potential will be actualized. 
So it's conceivable that you can have one conceiving, one act of intimacy, and that act of intimacy can give birth to multiple births. Not just one egg, and then she can give birth, and then uh, as a consequence of that previous intimacy, when she was allowed, she was pure, and she went to the mikvah, and the next day she'll give birth again, and the following day she'll give birth again. Are you talking two or three or thousands? I don't know, we'll find out. <laughs> Seven days for boys, 14 days for girls? The girls have a much higher purity than the boys. Okay. That's why it's, uh, the impurity is double, because their, their potential for purity, they have the power to create. Only God has the power to create. He didn't give, us, didn't give it to men. He only gave it to women. We make a contribution, but it's the, it's the women who are partners with Hashem in the miracle of creation. Their whole level of holiness is much higher than the men. That's why where there's an absence, there's impurity. So the greater the holiness, the greater the potential if there's an absence, it leads to impurity. That's why she has double. Her impurity is double. The girl is double than the boy. And that's why the main mikvah is for the woman. Even though we also have potential. Men also go to the mikvah every time they're intimate with their wives. But it's not the same. It's not biblical. It's not the same. Because she is the creator. She is partners with Hashem in creation. So when that potential is not realized, it's a greater vacuum, a greater void. There's a greater impurity, and that's why you need the mikvah. So, yes, women are... I don't have a problem with that at all, by the way. That, that's the way it is. Yeah. That's why we Jewish people survive. With all due respect, it's not because of the dear rabbis. <laughs> because of the Yiddish mamas. The Yiddish mamas who instilled in us, who gave us that Jewish pride, that neshama. There's no question, no question about it. No need to dwell on something so obvious as the fact that these laws will still apply when the entire Talmud and Majashim make known the reverse of the misleading impression formed by a superficial reading of our opening quotation from Rahayim and Emna. For example, the question is asked, a law for the time of Messiah? Why state now a law that will only apply to Messianic times? At that time, however, it will obviously be necessary to know it. So clearly the Talmud always says, refers to, why are you discussing something now? it only be relevant when Mashiach will come. You're telling us, you're telling us when Mashiach will come, the, the occupation, the engagement won't be in halacha. We're gonna, the main occupation, the whole occupation will be the secrets of the Torah and the Zohar. But the Gemara states clearly, Mashiach will come, we're gonna, we, these halachas will be practical. All the halacha will be very practical and very relevant. Likewise, we find that Elijah will come to clarify all doubts, and this passage of Elijah will expound in the future, and so on. Whenever the Gemara says teku, when the Gemara asks a question and is stumped and remains with a question, teku, teku is an acronym for tishbi yetaretz kushyaz vabayis. Tishbi refers to Elio, a tishbi Elio, comes from the town of tishbi. He will answer all these questions. So Mashiach will come. Elio, Elijah the prophet, is going to usher in Mashiach. He's going to announce Mashiach. When Mashiach comes, he's going to sit and answer all the questions, hundreds and who knows how many questions in the Talmud. The Talmud is left with a take. The mother says, I don't know the answer. Only Elio will come and will clarify all these discussions. So there will be discussions and there will be the engagement and the studying of the Talmud. All the questions in the Talmud, the Talmud was left without an, without an answer. Mashiach will come, then we're going to learn it and we're going to understand it thoroughly.
And that's what Eliyahu Navi is going to do when Mashiach comes. So we see when Mashiach will come, we will learn the halacha and engage in it and occupied with it. So how can, how can the Zohar go against the whole Talmud? How can there be such a conflict between the Zohar and the Talmud? According to the Talmud, Mashiach will come. That's, we're going to study halachas. And according to the Zohar, it seems to be, the superficial reading seems to be saying that we will only study the Zohar. We're not even going to study the, the revealed part of the Torah. No, it can be. Also not understandable is the statement that the Torah scholars will not be sustained by illiterate people and so on. As stated above, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is the root of Isabel, not dominate the Jewish people because the Torah scholars will not be sustained by illiterate people, nor by the mixed multitude who eat that which is ritually unfit, impure, prohibited, heaven forfend. Even during the time of the Second Temple, they were not supported by the illiterate people who ate that which was ritually unfit and prohibited heaven for fan. For the Torah scholars had filled the vineyards of their own, just like the illiterate people. Nevertheless, they engaged in the study of the laws of Isra and impurity and purity. For example, all the peers of leading sages who lived at the time of the Second Temple and they raised disciples in the legal aspects of the Torah in the thousands and tens of thousands, while the study of the esoteric of the Torah took place in secret and so on. We thus see that the fact that the Torah scholars need not be sustained by the illiterate is in no way a cause for their not studying, heaven forbid, the laws of Isabel and purity and impurity. So if you read it superficially, it seems to be saying Mashiach will come and the Torah scholars will be self-sufficient. They won't be dependent on the uh, illiterate. Not like Shabbos, which is dependent on the six days of the week. Not like today that the Torah scholars are dependent on their livelihood on the illiterate and therefore they have to engage in the tree of knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil and the halacha and the revealed part of the Torah. Mashiach will come. They'll be self-sufficient, independent. All they're going to study all day is the Zohar. Well, in the times of the Talmud, many rabbis were billionaires. They were rich, independent, self-sufficient. And yet, their main occupation was, as he established earlier, was the revealed part of the Torah, the overwhelming majority of the rabbis. And even the select few, the handful of few, who were initiated into the secrets of the Torah, to the secret society, well, even the master of them all, Abshimon Bayechai, the overwhelming majority of his time and his mind was fully engaged in the studying of the mission of the Talmud. And so they were not dependent on the illiterate, and yet that did not cause them to stop learning the Talmud and the mission. So what's going on here? The whole thing is riddled, makes no sense from beginning, middle to end. So obviously the superficial reading is exactly that. It's a completely superficial reading. And next time we meet after the high holidays, Alter Rebbe is going to open our eyes and give us the true meaning. And once he explains it, it's so obvious what the Zohar is telling us and that everything will make sense. And this is very fundamental because it helps us understand the relationship and the connection between the revealed part of the Torah and the secrets of the Torah. It's not two separate Torahs. It's not two separate Torahs. It's one Torah given by one God. It's like a body and a soul. They complement, they're one. They completely unify, just like the body and soul completely unify. They parallel, match each other perfectly. And you can't have one without the other. 
and it'll completely revolutionize and help us understand and change how we look at the studying of the secrets of the Torah, the revealed Torah, and their interrelationship with each other, interconnection with each other. You're, you're intimating some things earlier, but we'll, Alter Rebbe will explain this in great, uh, in great uh, clarity, in great detail. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.